Welcome to the fifth episode of the second season of the American Opioid Podcast. If you just started listening, you'll want to start at the beginning. More information is available at www.americanopioid.org. In the previous episode, Marjorie visited the methadone clinic and had her neighbor Amelia over for dinner to celebrate that evening. But just as it appeared that everything was going to be fine, the celebration turned out to be premature. Let's find out what happens next. A trickle of dread seeped into Marjorie's consciousness. She gathered herself, tried to act like everything was normal, but it wasn't. Amelia had just said something. I'm sorry, what? Marjorie asked. How are you doing on the job search? Amelia repeated. Oh, um... Marjorie racked her brains. She knew money was not the biggest issue to worry about. Matt was almost five, and the trust that had been set up by her relative, Sybil Vane, would soon deliver Marjorie a seven-figure windfall because he had not yet received a cochlear implant. But she had kept all of that to herself, for obvious reasons. You know, she said, I actually prefer to take some time off to make sure that I can fix the pill problem before I head back into the work world. Amelia pursed her lips, nodded. Yeah, makes sense, she said. Do you have enough money, though? Oh, I will, Marjorie thought. Out loud, she said. I'm fine, don't worry about it. Are you sure? Amelia asked. Yes, Marjorie snapped. She was vexed, but not because of Amelia. The trickle of dread had now become a stream, and she was partially submerged in its darkness. What is going on? Amelia sensed the shift in tone because she lowered her head and concentrated on finishing her food. The only sounds were slight grunts from Matt as he tried to wink with one eye while holding the lids of the other eye open with the tips of his fingers. Shortly after, Amelia left. Marjorie sat on the couch, despondent. Matt was tugging on her arm. She lightly pushed him away. Mommy doesn't feel good right now, she signed to him. She tried to distract herself by doing some research on her phone. The following morning, she arrived at the methadone clinic at 4 a.m. on the dot. Already, even before the crack of dawn, there was a long line. Fellow sufferers, as antsy as her. They were also not getting enough. When Marjorie asked the nurse for a stronger dose, she was subjected to a speech about meeting guidelines and avoiding abuse. Back home, after she had received her dose, Marjorie continued her research. The gold standard, based on a bunch of websites, 
was buprenorphine. It protected users trying to quit from cravings and withdrawal, just like methadone, but it was also available to take home. Maybe that was her best bet. The following day, after dropping off Matt at daycare, she called a clinic to schedule an appointment. Sorry, our physicians are not certified to prescribe that medication, the receptionist said over the phone. It requires an X waiver. Well, where can I get an X waiver? No, no, it's the doctor who needs to have the X waiver in order to be able to prescribe buprenorphine for addiction treatment. Ah, I see. Do you know of any other clinics where a physician would have that? You'll have to check the clinics up in High Falls. That's where they all are. Marjorie looked up all ten clinics, then proceeded to dial them one by one. Three had physicians who could prescribe buprenorphine. The first two were completely booked. Call us back in six months, she was told. The remaining clinic was more promising. We might be able to squeeze you in somewhere, the receptionist said, then told her the astronomical cost. Cash only. Marjorie blinked. But doesn't insurance cover it? she asked. There was a long pause. Okay, thanks for asking that, the receptionist said. You know what? We're shuffling a lot of things around in our schedule. You know how it is. Let me check once things settle down, and then we'll get back to you. Thanks, and good luck. Marjorie was not stupid. She knew they were saving slots for people who could pay it all with cash, which was more than even the best insurance would reimburse. The clinic wanted patients from its own neighborhood, from High Falls. They were milking the ex-waiver shortage for all it was worth. Segregation by income. Marjorie got up to retrieve the mail from outside. Across the trailer park, she saw Beatrice step out of her trailer and head toward her car. Marjorie waved and smiled, remembering her life-saving role a couple of nights ago when she had provided the naloxone to save Matt's life. Beatrice, upon seeing Marjorie, quickly looked away and hurried to her car. That was weird. Marjorie headed back inside with the mail. One envelope stood out immediately. Regal City Department of Education. She tore it open, eager to see how her application for Matt had turned out. Sadie and Tanya, Matt's tutors, had attached statements with strong recommendations and had assured her that approval was a done deal. Not that she wanted Matt to stay deaf. Marjorie had completed the application for a very different reason. She had realized that Matt's deafness was his ticket to a school in High Falls, which could offer him a significantly higher quality of education. Once his enrollment was locked in, she would get him a cochlear implant. He would have the best of both worlds. He would be able to hear, and his classmates would be the children of the affluent and the connected. Moreover, it was not too long before he turned five years old. The million-dollar payout from Sybil's Trust would help Marjorie and Matt in myriad ways. Marjorie began to read the letter. We regret to inform you that your application has been denied. 
Her stomach lurched. This could not be right. She read over the letter again. Limited municipal resources and other flimsy pablum. Marjorie picked up the phone and called Sadie. Unbelievable, Sadie said. I've never heard of a decision like this, not in all my years of working for the county. Your son's application should have been a slam dunk. I know that your city just took on a new education chancellor who has a reputation for being stingy, but this is way out of line. We're in the middle of a boom. The city has money, resources, no question. What should I do? Marjorie asked. With your permission, I can go to the press, Sadie said. Put a little heat on the mayor. I know he's sensitive about bad publicity, especially on education, which he campaigned on. Maybe something will happen, maybe it won't. I don't really know. You have my permission, absolutely, Marjorie said. Hold their feet to the fire. Okay, let me think about what else we can do. The only other deaf school in the county is private, so they charge a hefty tuition. I'm guessing that would be out of reach, unless there was some kind of grant or scholarship. Scholarship. Marjorie thought about the first part of Sybil's trust, the provision that promised to pay all expenses at any deaf school. She was about to mention it to Sadie, but then stopped cold. Her mind was preoccupied by something else. Marjorie thanked Sadie and wrapped up the call. Something was bothering her. Her neighbor Beatrice's strange behavior not too long ago. People did not act that way for no reason. She thought back to the moment when she and Amelia were standing outside Beatrice's door a couple of nights ago. Beatrice had been rambling on and on when suddenly, without warning, she shoved the naloxone into Marjorie's hands and shut the door. Something had caused the shift from one extreme to the other. Marjorie mentally replayed the event in slow motion. It happened at the exact moment her gaze had fallen on the dirty plastic bag in the corner. Why did that bag look so familiar? Marjorie tried to place it. Then Benny's words replayed in her mind. She takes stuff from me, stuff I need. She says she's borrowing it, but she never gives it back. The truth hit Marjorie with the force of a sledgehammer. That was the bag she had stored the pills and fentanyl patches in before burying them in the ground. Beatrice was the one who had dug it up. Beatrice was the thief, the criminal. The same guardian angel who had provided her with the drug that saved her son's life was also the thieving bitch who had taken her shit. They were one and the same. Marjorie wondered why Beatrice would leave the bag in a corner of the room like that, in plain sight. Then she found herself unable to remember anyone entering that trailer other than Benny. No need to hide it if no one ever came over. Shaking with anger, Marjorie picked up the phone to call the police then stopped. The fentanyl patches. She could not report it because this was the second theft. The first theft had been committed by Marjorie herself. The patches belonged not to her, but to Agatha, 
the mother of her former employer. Marjorie put the phone down. She could not get the police involved because she and Beatrice were in the same boat. The anger lingered, but it was overshadowed by shame. Marjorie knew that she, like Beatrice, was engaging in self-destructive behavior she could not fully control. In a way, they were both victims. They were both experiencing the horrifying disintegration of their morals under the overwhelming weight of addiction. Drugs had transformed them from mothers into monsters. As Marjorie thought about what she had resorted to just so she could secure more drugs, the shame grew unbearable. She could make the shame fade away at least for a few hours. She popped another pill, feeling like an alcoholic taking another swig, the cause of and solution to all her problems. In the days that followed, Marjorie grew despondent. Sadie's outreach to the press did not gain any traction. The reporters dismissed the rejected application as a boring bureaucratic matter. The clinics with the precious buprenorphine were too jam-packed with patients of better means. Everything was going wrong for Marjorie and her son. Worst of all, her pills were running out again. That weekend, she drove to bar after bar trying to find Leroy, the man who had offered to sell pills to her. He was her only hope. All her other avenues had been exhausted. On Sunday night, just as she was about to give up, she finally spotted him hunched over on a stool in a dive bar, nursing a cocktail. Leroy, she said, walking up. Let's talk. He glanced up at her, a quizzical expression on his face. Have we met before? he asked. Yes, once. I need... I mean, I'd like to see your product. His face broke out into a smile, revealing his freaky teeth. Oh yeah, you. Have you been? Marjorie was in no mood for pleasantries. I'd like to see your product, please, she said. Okay, but we'll need to go elsewhere, he said. I don't carry my product on me for safety reasons. Elsewhere turned out to be the trunk of his car. Marjorie took in the cornucopia, oxycodone, hydrocodone. It was all here. She decided to buy three vials. Okay, that'll be 1,042, he responded. What? Marjorie exclaimed. Leroy's expression did not change. Is this some kind of a joke? she asked. Supply is tight because of all the crackdowns recently, Leroy responded. It's harder to get this stuff now, but I still do because I have my sources. And my product is guaranteed to be the real thing. Not like those high schoolers out there pushing a bunch of stuff that you don't know what it is. They'll sell you heroin and it ends up being fentanyl and the next thing you know, you overdose from just one hit and bam, you're dead. Marjorie tried to bargain with Leroy, but no dice. I do have heroin if you're looking for something cheaper. And mine's legit. None of that black tar nonsense, Leroy said. Marjorie shook her head. No, that's illegal. I won't take that. Leroy let out a hearty laugh. Okay, whatever suits you, honey. His expression grew serious. But these are my prices, and they're not changing. Take it or leave it.
After heading back into the bar to withdraw cash from the ATM, Marjorie bought just one vial. She felt scalped and humiliated, but she bought it anyway. Here's my number, Leroy said. Look forward to doing business with you again. Two weeks before Matt's fifth birthday, Marjorie sat in her trailer, staring at her bank account balance on her phone. All the money she had so carefully saved up over the years was nearly gone. Leroy had it now, and she wanted more so she could give him more. There were never enough pills. Marjorie was no longer taking them to get high. The honeymoon was long gone. She just needed enough to not get sick. Marjorie sighed, then applied for a cash advance off her credit card. On Matt's fifth birthday, Marjorie sent in the paperwork to Sybil. Proof of Matt's age, his medical records certifying he was still legally deaf. A certification that there was no evidence he had been subjected to any kind of operation for a cochlear implant. The check promptly arrived in the mail. She passed her fingers over the thick paper, hardly able to believe the seven-figure amount printed there. Time to go to the bank. The teller's eyes nearly popped out of her head when she saw the check. Holy shit, she whispered. She looked up at Marjorie. Did you win the lottery or something? Marjorie laughed. Something like that. 650 grand is nothing to sneeze at, the teller said. Marjorie frowned. What do you mean? It's a million. Not after taxes, the teller said. A huge chunk of this is going straight to Uncle Sam. Might want to talk to an accountant to get that sorted out before the IRS comes knocking on your door. They always find out. Oh, shit. In all her glee over the payout, Marjorie had forgotten about reality. She headed home, less cheerful than before. In her trailer, she sorted through the mail. One envelope stood out. It was from Lakeview Elementary School, the public school closest to her. Kindergarten would start for Matt in less than a month. With that knowledge came the abject shame, the sickening awareness that she had compromised her son's future for dollars in the present. Her relative, Sybil, had won. Marjorie took out the letter from Sybil, the document listing the provisions of the trust. She thought about what Sadie had said about the private deaf school elsewhere in the county. The trust would pay the full tuition cost without limit. The anger rose in Marjorie. Sybil was pulling the strings, and Marjorie was just a puppet, dutifully carrying out her instructions. This would not do. This was her son's life. Her hands shaking, Marjorie tore up Sybil's letter, put the pieces in the garbage. Her son would not stay deaf. She would get him the cochlear implant. She would fix what had gone neglected for too long. In the meantime, she would not interfere with his enrollment in the public school. That was where he belonged, in the real world, because he would only be deaf temporarily, for a few days. Days that would become weeks. Weeks that would become months. And thus it came to pass that Matthew Kane 
would have the worst of both worlds. Neither deaf in a dedicated private school for the deaf, nor being able to hear in a public school. Rather, he would remain deaf in one of the roughest public school systems in the state, a district that had no special accommodations for those with his disability. It was under these inauspicious circumstances that America's opioid son began kindergarten. This concludes Season 2 of the American Opioid Podcast. We would love to hear your feedback about the podcast. We would also like to bring your attention to the American Opioid Project, a crowdsourced encyclopedia of the opioid crisis that will help the public understand how the crisis was experienced in all 50 states from a variety of perspectives. Share your story today by visiting www.americanopioid.org. Take care.